Amen. Well, what a beautiful prayer it was to sing that we want to hear the Lord speak. And just like we prayed in song, before we hear God's word proclaimed, we're going to pray again. So we have reached the time of our pastoral prayer where one of the pastors lead us in a prayer of supplication where we make intercession for things that's either happening around the world or in our country. We pray for another faithful gospel preaching church in the area. We pray for the members of, some members at Midtown Baptist Church, and we pray for the preaching of God's word. And so now let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, you are the God of all nations. And God, as we think about the nations, we pray for the persecuted church around the world. God, as many gather on the Lord's day around the world, they face the threat of persecution. God, we ask that you would strengthen them to endure persecution for Christ's name. May they rejoice as they share in the sufferings of Christ. May they feast upon your word and proclaim your gospel to those who don't know Christ. May they endure to the end. May those who hear the gospel from them repent and trust in Jesus. May they encourage one another as they endure such suffering for the name of your son. And God, as we think about local churches in Memphis, we pray for Grace Church. We pray for Pastor Jordan Thomas. May he keep a close watch on his life and teaching. May the elders be an example of godliness to the members of that church. May the gospel spread through the members at that church. May they be the aroma of Christ to their neighbors. And we pray that it would be from life to life. And God, as we think about our church, we pray that we would love and prize your word. May we study it, meditate on it, hide it in our hearts, obey it, and share it with one another and our neighbors. And God, as we think about members, we pray for our sister Mary Renfro. We praise you for saving her by your grace. May she treasure Christ above all and be zealous for the things of Christ. May you remain her refuge and hope. May her light shine before others so that they may see her good works and give glory to you. God, may she be committed to speaking your word to the saints, and may she be hospitable with the intentions to build up. And God, as we think about our brother Donald Shelton, we praise you for saving him. God, may he discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. May his hunger and thirst for Christ abound. May he love his wife Leanne and lay down his life for her. May he regularly wash her with the word and point her to Christ with his words and deeds. God, may you use him to sharpen the members in our body by speaking your word to us. And as we prepare to hear your preached word, God, may you open our eyes and may your spirit go to work on us as your word is proclaimed. May we decrease and you increase. We ask that you would build up your church through the preached word and save those who don't know Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 10. 
We'll be in verses 1 to 16 this morning. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. It's a rare condition, this day and age, to read any good news on the newspaper page. Love and tradition of the grand design, some people say it's even harder to find. If you do not know, these are the lyrics to the hit TV show, Family Matters. Probably familiar with it because of the character Steve Urkel. Very famous guy. And guys, y'all should be glad that I didn't heed my wife's advice because she told me to sing the lyrics. But I I wanted to spare you guys. But in case you missed it, I'm going to read a line from the song where he says, Love and tradition of the grand design, some people say it's even harder to find. Beloved, if such words were true over 30 years ago, they're even truer today. You see, God himself has created family according to his purposes. And yet, his traditions and designs for family, and marriage in particular, have been belittled, neglected, and rejected. And we will see this in the passage this morning. And we will also see Jesus tells us the intentions for marriage. Now, I know this is Easter, and many of you may be thinking that this is an unconventional Easter text and topic. I get it. (laughs) But to that, I would just say, like, yo, we celebrate and preach the resurrection of Jesus every Lord's Day. And so we're going to continue making our journey through Mark's gospel. And Lord willing, we will get to Mark chapter 16, and our sermon will be on the resurrection. So if you want to hear on the resurrection or a particular text, come back. (laughs) But Mark chapter 16, not, not 16, my bad, Mark chapter 10, please stand for the reading of God's word in honor of the word. He set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. The crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. They said to him, who... Well, he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. 
People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me, don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. You may be seated. And so from this passage, we have three points. Three points. The first point is God's intentions for marriage. Then God's instructions on divorce and remarriage. And thirdly, God's invitation to the kingdom. So the first point would be God's intention for marriage. Second, God's instruction on divorce and remarriage. And third, God's invitation to the kingdom. And so the first point, God's intentions for marriage. Look at verses 1 and 2. He set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And so Jesus and the disciples are continuing their journey to Jerusalem. They get into the region of Judea, and word travels that Jesus is in town. As usual, the crowds flock to Jesus. And as usual... Jesus seizes the opportunity to teach them. And though the crowds flock to him, not all in the crowd have come to learn. You see, it says that the Pharisees came. These are the religious leaders. They have been beefing with Jesus for some time. And they are up to no good yet again. You see, they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They're asking about the lawfulness of divorce. But notice their motives. It said they came to test him. You see, they have ulterior motives. They didn't ask this question out of curiosity in order to learn, but they asked in order to trap Jesus that they may kill him. And it's likely that they asked about it being lawful for a man to divorce um, his wife, they ask him, it's likely they asked him this because where Jesus is located. He's in Judea, which is the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. It is this same Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded for saying that his marriage to Herodias was unlawful. And so it's likely that they hoped Jesus' response would place him in Herod's crossfire and that Herod would put him to death just like he did John the Baptist. You see, the topic is divorce. And what is a divorce? Well, it is the legal dissolvent or annulment of a marriage. You see, back then, there was a common view among Jews and Gentiles that divorce was permissible. And in Scripture, there were specific cases that permitted divorce. Well, in their day, 
like in our current day, there is a loose view regarding the grounds for divorce. There was a low commitment of remaining married. So the Pharisees, they try to set this trap. Now let's see how Jesus responded. Verse 3, he replied to them, what did Moses command you? You see, Jesus appealed to scripture. You see, God, through Moses, wrote the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch, which also in there is the law. Moses wrote the law, and so Jesus is asking about what did Moses write because Moses, Moses had made it known that divorce is permissible in the law. And so Jesus is asking what was written. And y'all, Jesus' response is instructive for us. You see, on any topic, our first question should be, what do the scriptures say? We should be less interested in people's opinions and far more concerned about what God says. You see, we appeal to God's word, especially on difficult topics, because his word is the final authority. Look at verse 4. They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. You see, now the law, it permitted divorce. The Pharisees are referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 3, where a man had freedom to divorce his wife if he found some sort of indecency in her. Now, the word indecency, it, was a ambigu it is an ambiguous term. Now, during their day, there were two schools of thought on what this word mean. Some thought it referred to a moral failure like adultery. Others thought it could mean more than a moral failure, but a slew of other reasons. And y'all, the looser perspective won out to where people thought that they had grounds to divorce their wife if their food wasn't properly cooked. You see, this looser perspective won out, and it was close to no-fault divorce. And look how Jesus responded. Verse 5, but Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. You see, Jesus declares that the real problem is the hardness of your hearts. And what he's getting at is this, that divorce exists because sin exists. Now, that's not to say that every divorce is sinful because it's not. But every divorce is caused by sin. You see, sin is first produced in the heart. And people have hard hearts because we are born in Adam. And hard hearts defy God's will and ways to where they have the capability of producing sins that are so destructive that in some cases God will permit divorce for the sake of damage control. It is to limit the destruction of human sin to prevent worse things from happening. So Jesus makes this known. And what we're about to see is that the Pharisees, they're focused on whether or not divorce is allowed. And what we're going to see is that Jesus instead instructs them on God's aim and intentions for marriage. You see, the Pharisees, they missed God's intentions for marriage. And so Jesus is about to inform them on it. 
They are getting more than what they asked for, but it is exactly what they needed. And so in the next three verses, in verses six to nine, we're going to see the origin, the nature, and the permanence of marriage. First, the origin. Look at verse six. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. You see, Jesus, he appeals to the creation account in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created all things and it was good. Marriage is a part of the goodness of God's creation. It is a pre-fall blessing created and instituted by God Almighty. Marriage, like all good things, is from God. It is his doing according to his will, and he alone has the authority to establish the nature of marriage. Look at verses 6 and 7 and 8 again. He says, but from the beginning, God, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. You see, the, na- the nature of marriage is a covenant union between one man and one woman. And Jesus begins expounding on marriage by first talking about humanity. Did you catch it? He quoted Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, where we see that God made the first human beings in his image. He made them male and female. Both are equally made in God's image, and though distinct in gender, they are complementary and compatible with each other. You see, humanity consists of men and women. These are the only two genders. God sovereignly assigns our gender at conception, and it cannot be changed. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. His works are wondrous, and that includes the gender that he assigns to us. You see, he begins here. The nature of marriage is the exclusive union between one man and one woman. It is a creation ordinance, meaning that it's for all people, Christians and non-Christians. And here God declares that for there to be a marriage... It must be between one man and one woman. Anything outside of this parameter does not constitute as a marriage because it's outside of the bounds which God has set. Now, some may claim that Jesus never spoke against homosexuality, and so he must be cool with it. To which I would say here he positively defines the nature of a marriage. He states God's intentions for marriage by quoting the first two chapters of Genesis. God, the creator of marriage, has the authority to define the nature of marriage. And his definition is not up for debate or negotiation or expansion. And government has no authority to try to redefine marriage according to its choosing. For it didn't create marriage. And so it can't expand the definition of marriage. Now, people may oppose the biblical definition of marriage, but the church should not capitulate to cultural pressures to redefine marriage. God has spoken on this matter, and therefore we must uphold it. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we should be jerks for Jesus, because we shouldn't. Those who disagree with us, they are still image bearers, and they are worthy of love, honor, and respect. We should have compassion on them while also being courageous and not compromising the truth, no matter the cost. We are to speak the truth in love and to do so with gentleness and respect. You see, in this passage on the nature of marriage, we see that marriage is God's doing. He's the ultimate efficient who joins man and woman together and pronounces them husband and wife. He does this upon their vows as they make a covenant with each other. And it's consummated through marital intimacy. Then we'll see the permanence of marriage. Look at verse 8 again. It says, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You see, God's intentions for marriage is that it is to be a lifelong covenant union between a man and a woman. Marriage is not supposed to end in divorce. If you were to read Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you will not see the word divorce. And why? It's because there was no sin, no hardness of heart, and therefore no divorce. We are created to have lifelong, uh, lifelong marriage with each other, men and women. And here Jesus commands that what God has joined together, let no one separate. You see, to try to separate what God has joined together is to oppose God himself. It is sin. It is to put oneself on a head-on collision with God Almighty who judges. You see, in this section, Jesus states God's intentions for marriage. And beloved, the question for us is, do we view marriage according to God's intentions? Do we communicate God's intentions for marriage? You see, in our country, there's a low view of marriage and a high support of no-fault divorce. And the world's perspective can easily influence us if we are not careful. We can begin to view marriage as a burden or an inconvenience instead of a blessing, where it's no longer seen as a good gift from God but a hindrance towards our ambitions and happiness. Beloved, we are to value and protect marriages. God intends for marriage to last and not end in divorce. And the church should labor towards that end. Beloved, we should be praying for marriages as we pray for members in the church. Jesus says that the problem of divorce stems from the hardness of heart. So may we pray for soft hearts towards God, his word, and our spouses. Now, I know that marriage can be difficult, and all who are married will struggle because marriage is the union of two sinners. And in marriage, our sins are exposed, and sin can separate us. It can destroy, it can in, it, yeah, it can ruin or impact our communion with each other. To which I would say, man, if 
things are rough in your marriage, if you are struggling, I would encourage you to seek counsel from your pastors and members of the church. For we have the responsibility to help one another follow Jesus, and that's in our marriages as well. So we want to encourage one another and help one another love Jesus and our spouse. Friends, marriage is a good thing, and we should encourage it and celebrate it when members get married. And though marriage is good, it is not ultimate. We must be on guard against idolizing marriage. May we not believe the lie that one starts living the good life as soon as they get married. Beloved, if you are a single brother or sister, you are not a second-class citizen in God's kingdom. Life doesn't begin for you if the Lord wills for you to marry. I would encourage you to steward your singleness well by God's grace, laboring for God's kingdom while also praying for marriage if you desire to be married. And know that you're not viewed as less than in God's eyes nor in the church. You see, marriage, it is a gift from God. And as good as it is, it is only bound to this life. It is a shadow and the substance is Christ and the church. Scripture describes the relationship between Christ and the church as one of a marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, the Apostle Paul says that, in it, the Apostle Paul says that marriage is a mystery and that he's referring to Christ and the church. You see, marriage is intended to point beyond itself to the relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride. And at the end of age, what marriage has anticipated would have arrived. When Christ returns, he will take his bride, the church, and there will be a wedding feast. And beloved, that day is the day that we are awaiting. And so in the first section, the first point, we see Jesus corrects the Pharisees. You see, they are concerned about concessions. They're concerned about what God allows, where Jesus talks about God's will and his aim for marriage. And now that we've built a foundation on God's intentions for marriage, let's look at his instructions for divorce and remarriage. Look at verse 10. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. And so they're back inside the house. And remember, as I said last week, the, the crib was a common place for further instruction and insight. It's Q&A time. The disciples are thinking along with the Pharisees, and so they have questions regarding the grounds of divorce in light of what Jesus has said. Look at verse 11 and 12. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery against him. She commits adultery. And so Jesus here, he emphatically denounces the idea of no-fault divorce. He authoritatively confronts and opposes this idea that one can divorce their spouse for any reason and remarry. He can speak with such authority because of who he is. 
He is the Son of God in human flesh. And he can, he can speak with the authority of God because he is God. You see, in these two verses, Jesus says that the general rule is if one has divorced their spouse on unbiblical grounds and remarried, they have transgressed God's law by committing adultery against their spouse. See, this is a serious matter. He finds fault with no-fault divorce. And if we're honest, Jesus' words, they don't sit well with our culture because there's a low and unbiblical view on marriage. Or one believes that marriage is solely about self. And so one can divorce and remarry for whatever reason they choose. Well, here Jesus denounces the idea of no-fault divorce. Now, hear me. I don't believe Jesus is saying that it's always a sin to divorce and remarry. I believe that Jesus is getting at the general rule outside of the exceptions. Now, mature Christians have disagreed on this topic of divorce and remarriage for centuries. So one must be charitable with each other as we hold our convictions. Now, regarding divorce and remarriage, there are three common views. The first view is that you never initiate divorce, and if divorced, never remarry. The second view is divorce is permissible under particular circumstances, but never remarry. And the third view is divorce and remarriage is permissible on the grounds of adultery, abandonment, and or abuse. And the elders here, we would hold to the third position, that we believe that, the, that divorce and remarriage is permissible on the grounds of adultery, abandonment, and abuse. Now, one may wonder, why hold to the third position when Jesus says what he says in, the, in verses 11 and 12? It sounds like he is straight up opposing divorce and remarriage, period. No exceptions. To which I would say, good question. I would also say that we have to be careful to not proof text scripture by taking one verse and have it stand on top of all the verses on this subject. And we also must be mindful that scripture never contradicts itself. And so we want to read God's word in light of God's word. You see, here in Mark's gospel, I would say the exception is implicit but in Matthew's account, the exception is explicit. You see, in Matthew 19, this conversation is also recorded. And in verse 9, Jesus says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery against her. And this is not Jesus' first time making a comment like this. You see, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written certificate of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You see, the Greek word for sexual immorality is porneia. 
from which we get the word pornography. And there are a litany of sexual sins that fall under the category of porneia, and adultery is one of them. And Jesus is saying that adultery is biblical grounds for divorce. And we also see that the law permitted divorce. Exodus chapter 21, verse 10 and 11, and Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 3. And not only that, but the Apostle Paul also states that physical abandonment is grounds for divorce. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, and verse 15 says this, If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. You see, in these cases of exception, I would say divorce and remarriage would be permissible. And so with these verses in mind, I believe that Jesus clearly communicates that the general rule is whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. That this is the general rule. Now, this may raise some questions. So one may wonder, well, what if someone has sought divorce on unbiblical grounds and have remarried? And to that I'd say that one has sinned against God, that they've committed adultery against their former spouse. And as serious as that sin is, I would say that know that Jesus offers forgiveness to the repentant. Mark chapter 3 verse 28 says, truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins, all sins, all sins, and whatever blasphemies they utter. They have not committed the unpardonable sin. God is gracious to forgive all who confess their sins and repent of them. First John chapter 1 verse 9 says that if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if they are in Christ, Jesus is their advocate, and his sin-atoning blood covers that sin. To which I would say, the person, I would tell that person they should confess their sins, repent of them, and remain faithful to their spouse in their current marriage. You see, beloved, divorce is hard, it's hurtful, and it's messy. It impacts families deeply, even when done for biblical reasons. You see, Jesus says that the hardness of heart produces sin in such cases that that sin can be so destructive they can ruin a marriage and result in divorce. May we be sobered by this. May we heed Jesus' instructions on divorce and remarriage. Beloved, may we not harden our hearts. And by his grace, may we obey his word and seek to do his will. So we've seen God's instructions on divorce and remarriage. Now let's look at God's invitation into the kingdom of God. Look at verse 13. 
People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. And so Mark, he transitions from talking about marriage to talking about children. And it's fitting because children are the fruit of marriage. You see, God's intended means for procreation is to happen through the context of marriage. And here we see children, parents are bringing their children to Jesus, wanting him to touch them. Now this touch, it communicated some sort of blessing. And as they are doing this, look how Jesus, not, not Jesus, look how the disciples responded. He says, but the disciples rebuked them. You see, these disciples, they're functioning like authoritative bouncers, acting like Jesus' bodyguard, telling them, no, nah, don't come to him. Instead, they're rebuking him. And last week, we saw them try to stop someone from casting out a demon, and now we're seeing them trying to stop children from coming to Jesus. You see, they rebuke the kids like how Jesus rebukes the demons. They are opposing the kiddos. And why? Well, as I said last week, society had a low view of children. They didn't value children because children couldn't do anything for them. And though Jesus instructed them on this, they're still operating according to the world's perspective. Look what happens next. Verse 14. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. You see, Jesus ain't having it. See, what Jesus did right here is like how my mom would do if I was cutting up in a grocery store growing up. She would get on me like crazy. <laughs> like for real though, she would get on me. But here Jesus ain't having it. He gets angry for them for preventing the children from coming to them, to him. You see, he rebukes the disciples with a double command. He says, let the children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. You see, Jesus loves the little children. He doesn't despise or devalue them. Instead, he welcomes them and wants them to come to him. And parents, this should be instructive for us. Jesus wants the children to come to him. And like the parents, we should, want our, we should bring our children to Jesus. And just as Jesus rebuked the disciples, he would rebuke us for poor parenting if we are not bringing our children to him. See, parents know that it's never too early to begin instructing your children in the ways of the Lord and bringing them to Jesus. Just like they can learn their names, numbers, the ABCs, then they can begin learning God's word. Just like they can begin learning multiplication, they begin learning scripture, hiding it in their hearts, and being catechized. Beloved, may we take advantage, may we be intentional in pointing our kids to Jesus and bringing them to him, in prayer and bringing him to them through instructing them in God's word. And members, may we not be like the disciples, preventing the children from coming to Jesus. May we be eager to bring the children to him. One of the ways that you can do this is by serving in the children's ministry and pointing the children to Jesus, praying for them and talking with them about the gospel. 
Another way is for children who are older. You can come alongside the parents, spending time with the kids and talking to them about Jesus. Pointing them to the gospel, instructing them in the ways of the Lord. Coming alongside parents. Church, may we partner with parents to raise the children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Catch the last part. He said the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And again, Jesus, he can say this because of who he is. He is the king who brings in the kingdom and he has authority to declare who the kingdom, he has the authority to declare who the kingdom is for. And he says that the kingdom is, belongs to such as these. As one pastor has said, he said, children are a subset of people Jesus came to save. Which means that Jesus, he came to save men, women, and children. Now, when he says that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, this doesn't mean that children automatically get into the kingdom as if they're born into the kingdom. What this means is that children are capable of repenting of their sins and believing the gospel just like adults. And as they do this, they are brought into God's kingdom. You see, the requirement for entering the kingdom of God is the same for all. Men, women, and children, we must repent and believe the gospel. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, when Jesus begins his ministry, he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. You see, all who are saved, men, women, and children, are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Children who trust in Christ are heirs of God's kingdom. And scripture testifies to the reality that children too can believe in Jesus and be saved. Acts chapter 16 verses 31 to 34 talks about how Paul told the Philippian jailer to believe in Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Well, in verse 32, they shared the gospel with him and his fam. Verse 33 Paul baptized him and his fam. Verse 34, they rejoiced because the jailer came to believe in God with his entire household. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 states that children obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. You see, to obey their parents in the Lord is to do so in submission to the Lord himself. And they do it because he is their Lord. They have placed their trust in Jesus. As Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus, he calls out the children, telling them to obey their parents in the Lord, which implies that the church, that these believing children are a part of the church. You see, the Lord, he saves all who trust in him, men, women, and children. And on that note, let me address the children and the teens. You see, Jesus, he says that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Friends, you are not too young to trust in Jesus. 
You see, there are a number of things that you're too young to do. You're too young to drive. You're too young to vote. You're too young to register yourself for school or a sport. And though you may be too young for these things, you are not too young to trust in Jesus Christ. And this is great news because there's no better thing that you can do in your life than to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. I would encourage you to trust in Jesus. Embrace him by faith. And as you do that, he will save you. Children, if you come to Jesus in faith, he will embrace you with his arms. And so on your way home, I would encourage you to talk with your parents about what it means to trust in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 15 and 16. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. You see here, Jesus, he exhorts us to emulate a child's dependence. And he says that entrance into God's kingdom is contingent upon doing so. You see, children, they receive. They bring nothing and give nothing. And I would know because I got two of them. <laughs> bring nothing and give absolutely nothing. And you parents in here, you can relate. You probably say an amen in your heart. But seriously, though, children, they bring nothing and give nothing. They're needy and dependent, not self-sufficient and independent. And that's how we are to be with Jesus. We bring nothing to him. Instead, we need him. We need forgiveness for our sins, and we need his righteousness that we may be justified, both of which Jesus provides through the gospel. In his love for us, he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And he imputes his righteousness to us when we place our trust in Jesus and we are justified before God. You see, we depend not on our works, but upon Christ and his work. We don't achieve salvation, but we receive it by God's grace through faith in Christ. We don't extend anything to Jesus. We only embrace what he gives, which is himself. You see, total reliance upon Christ is the only way that we are brought into God's kingdom. And those who are in Christ, we are brought into God's kingdom by God's grace when we repented and believed. And so, beloved, may we remind one another to continue being fully dependent upon Jesus. We don't graduate from dependence upon him. If we've embraced him with utter dependence upon him, the question for us is, are we still relying wholeheartedly upon him? May we do so. This will be good for us to discuss later. Jesus says only those who receive Jesus' work and promises by faith will be brought into God's kingdom. And so if you're not a Christian, I am glad you are here. I want you to know that Jesus loves you and that he invites you to receive the gospel like a child that you may be saved. 
You see, growing up, you've probably operated under the assumption that if you want it, you must earn it. Now, that may be how it works to win an award or some sort of recognition, but that's not how it works in God's kingdom. Friends, you have rebelled against God, and no amount of works can make up for that. You need forgiveness for your sins and a perfect righteousness, neither of which you can accomplish on your own, but both of which Jesus has accomplished for those who trust in him. You see, the Son of God, he became man, perfectly obeyed the law, and bore God's wrath in the place of all who would trust in him. And he resurrected from the grave a bodily resurrection, which Christians celebrate on Easter and every Lord's Day. And all who receive Christ by faith, we are forgiven and declared righteous before God. We're no longer his enemies, but we're his adopted sons and daughters. When he looks upon us, he sees his son's perfect righteousness. So I would implore you, to trust in Jesus Christ today and be saved. If you want to talk more and you're comfortable with it, you can talk with any of the members after service. They would love, we would love to have this conversation with you. You see, in our text, we see Jesus invites all men, women, and children to receive the kingdom of God like a child that we may enter it. And when Christ returns, the very kingdom that he's inviting us into, he will return and consummate it, where all who receive the kingdom like a child will be with him and will reign with him. It is the day that we await, which is one day closer to being our eternal reality. He is coming soon. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are gracious, so gracious to send your son that he may redeem us with his blood, to save us from the wrath that we rightfully deserve, to reconcile us to yourself that we may be brought into the kingdom. God, we pray that we would know your intentions and heed your instructions and rely wholeheartedly upon the Lord Christ who is our only Savior and hope. We pray that he will come soon. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You see, in our passage, Jesus says that we are to receive the kingdom like a child, to which we are to say, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We boast not in ourselves, but in the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he has done. And all who are in Christ, our song is all glory be to him because he has saved us by his grace. And when Christ returns, all the redeemed will forever declare all glory be to Christ. And so with that being said, as we await that day, May, we, may that be the theme of our song every day until we see our Savior. And so let's stand and sing our final hymn, All Glory Be to Christ.